Thank you for tuning in to the Unjiggered Podcast. If you enjoy listening, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating on your podcast service of choice. Also, don't forget to like and tag us on Instagram at unjiggered underscore media. Thank you to everybody for listening, and now on with the show. You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week we have Jay Khan on the show, founder of Koa in Hong Kong. We chat about working in a karaoke bar, his opinion on working in hotels, and he gives us a short lesson on tequila versus mezcal. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, my name is Jay. I'm the founder of Koa. It's a bar in Hong Kong that specializes in uh, agave spirits. Thank you very much for finding the time. How are you? I'm very well, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. You get into travel quite a bit recently, yeah? Yeah, the past couple of months, I guess. You know, right now, this is not the best time in Hong Kong. So we want to take this opportunity to travel more and uh, do more promotion. So you have a very interesting background. Uh, that's why we're here to talk about who you are and how you managed to open your own bar. So first of all, would you like to tell us where you're from? Well, I was born in Hong Kong. I grew up in Hong Kong. My mom was born in Hong Kong. But originally, I'm actually from a country that we're not supposed to drink alcohol, sell alcohol. I'm actually from Pakistan by uh, my blood. But I was uh, born in Hong Kong, grew up there. And I've lived my life in Hong Kong. I went to Australia, uh, lived there for a couple of years. But majority of my time in Hong Kong, actually. And uh, how did you get into bartending? Well, I guess it was by accident. Um, I my first F and B job was working in a dim sum restaurant. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I I went into this restaurant nearby where I used to live, and uh, I walked in and I was like, I want a job. And they said, Are you okay with clearing dirty dishes? I'm like, Yeah, sure, I'll do it. And then that that day where where I worked, you know. It was intense, and I quit the next day. Really? <laughs> it was it was tough. I was I think I was only like eighteen years old at Strong the time. <laughs> it was intense, but because I could speak Cantonese, I was born in Hong Kong, so they gave me the job, and I thought I could handle it, but I couldn't. It was tough. Uh, then I actually worked at a hard rock cafe in Hong Kong. Oh, that's so cool! Yeah, it was a uh, <clears throat> the old one uh, in Hong Kong, which already closed down. Uh, I used to work there because a lot of my schoolmates. We're actually working there. So that's where actually I started working uh, in F&B. And uh, it was on the floor carrying hot plates. And there was a lot of study to do about food. And I wasn't that into F&B at that time. I just wanted to do it because of probably because I couldn't get a job. And again, I didn't last too long there. And I moved on. Uh, I went to this uh, karaoke bar in Hong Kong, which was actually uh, in a building. Uh, even now, I guess, but back then, you know, it was very popular in Hong Kong where you, you have uh, designated buildings with full of karaoke bars, you know, from the first floor all the way to the top. So you've so, got like uh, one building with like karaoke bars and that's it. Yeah. So every floor, they have a different bar, but ah. they're all very similar. Okay. Uh, similar business model. You pay at the door, you go inside, you you drink until your, your liver can't take it anymore. And my so basically what I did was I, I started giving out my CV from the top floor and walked down all the way to the bottom. I got a couple of calls. Uh, people were impressed because I could speak Cantonese and they wanted to hire me because they wanted to have somebody that doesn't look like Chinese in the bar. I think it was for marketing, probably. So I got a job and I uh, started working on the floor. Uh, but as you know, working in karaoke bars is nothing, nothing sexy because <laughs> people drink a lot there. 
and eventually you know like people like us we need to do everything you know we need to clean clean all the mess people vomit yeah we yeah. used to make you know drinks that were sweet strong people order long island iced tea because they wanted to get drunk there was this drink called nothing which is uh very popular in hong kong it consists of vodka malibu midori pineapple juice so there's oh, no citrus drink, eh? there's no citrus <laughs> but people loved it really yeah people loved it sex on the beach uh that was another popular drink snowball you know snowball yeah but who drinks snowballs nowadays? well it used to and now of course now nobody drinks it but back then you know like it was it was a thing you know like people want something sweet and uh, light you know they would order a snowball uh yeah those were a few drinks that were actually making that so that was my start in the career actually and you since you worked in a karaoke bar your voice must be amazing are you good at singing you know, because I work in a karaoke bar, that's why I hate going to karaoke. It's like a lot of my friends, they they always invite me to go sing karaoke, and I just can't. Yeah, uh, it yeah. just brings back, you know, like some really oh, bad, bad memories. memories. <laughs> you're you're like PTSD every time you see a karaoke booth. Yeah. And at what stage did you decide that you wanted to start to make uh, proper cocktails? I think um, I went to Australia, Melbourne, actually, in the year 2008 and nine. I was working right across Black Pearl, you know. Black Pearl was and is a legendary bar, and and that's where actually I, I took bartending seriously because I used to frequent the bar. Uh, I used to work across the road, and um, I saw the bartenders there. You know, they were not just making cocktails, but they were engaging with the customers. They were asking you know, the likes and dislike of the customers. So it really like changed my mind. And that's where I actually got serious about bartending. So what sort of like, because you are very much of an agave guy, right? At what yes. stage did you start thinking that that's your sort of favorite spirit category? So after Australia, I went back to Hong Kong and they were opening a bar called Lillian Bloom, which unfortunately just closed down. Uh, but it was an institution. It opened for a long time for, I think, from 2010 to, I think, until this year, early this year. Uh, it's considered an institution. Uh, it was probably the first bar not in a hotel that was focusing on cocktails. And it really changed the bar scene in Hong Kong. And I was lucky enough to be part of the opening team. Um, and that's where uh, it, it was a it was a speakeasy bar. Um, it was an American style bar. A lot of uh, American bartenders, when they came to Hong Kong, you know, they would come. And they would bring, you know, like bottles of mezcal, actually. And that's where I actually got introduced to mezcal for the first time in 2010. Uh, it wasn't like a love at first sight. Uh, it was very, very interesting to me because no other spirit actually tasted that unique. And since then, you know, like slowly and slowly, you know, uh, more tequilas and more mezcal started to come into Hong Kong because more cocktail bars were actually opening. And that was kind of like my beginning, you know, to how I got introduced to uh, tequila and mezcal. What is it that you really like about mezcal? Well, I think uh, mezcal is uh, one of the most tervar-driven uh, spirit in the world. If there's one spirit that I personally think that's close to a wine, it uh, would be a mezcal. Because when you talk about mezcal, you talk about agave varieties. It's just like wine. You talk about grape varieties. You talk about the place where it's from. Um, different parts of Mexico the way they produce mezcal can vary as well. For example, if you're in Oaxaca, and there's this uh, town called uh, Santa Catarina Minas, where they are known to distill their mezcal in clay pots. 
So that's unique, you know. I mean, it's not just there, but it's unique. When you look at Santa Catarina Minas, you know that uh, this mezcal is made from clay pot, actually. Uh, so there is, like, you know, identities, you know, mm -hmm. like characters, depending on where the mezcal is actually produced from. To me, that is really fascinating. How long have you worked in this bar? The first one you tried in Hong Kong with the mezcal? Uh, Lillian Bloom. Lillian uh, Lillian, well, sorry. I didn't work too long because although I tried mezcal for the first time there, uh, but actually, I think within a year I left uh, because I was actually really into whiskey then. Oh, really? Yeah. Whiskey was my thing back then, and uh, I moved to Macau. I worked in Macau for a good three years uh, because they were opening a whiskey bar. It was called the Macallan Bar in Galaxy Hotel. And at that time, they were uh, bringing in around 400 to 500 different labels of whiskey. And there was nowhere else, you know, uh, with that many whiskey, you know, where I lived. So I took the job. I, I went on and I was part of the opening team there as well. Uh, and yeah, so that was that was me back then. Um, and then I m came back to Hong Kong after around three years and I started working in a few different places. And there's a bar in Hong Kong called Agave Bar. So Agave Bar, I mean, it was a restaurant uh, with a bar. Uh, but they had a lot of uh, tequilas. They didn't. They didn't have any mezcal, but they had a lot of tequilas, and that's where I um, got to actually try some very unique tequilas because they brought those tequilas in around um, the year two thousand, and that was the year also where agave was uh, in high demand because of the shortage. Uh, it was m way more expensive, but they brought like a container in from Mexico to Hong Kong to actually open agave in Hong Kong. The agave is the name of the restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where they actually invited people like Julio Bermejo for the first time in Hong oh, Kong. Oh, no way. Yeah, and uh, he made Tommy's margaritas. <laughs> uh, I mean, at that time, uh, I was too young. I was uh, still, you know, going to school, but people, you know, like the the person who was behind agave actually told me all, all about this. And um, yeah, so... Uh, I, I, I got a job there. It was a big group, actually, so I wasn't just working in Agave, but uh, taking care of the beverage program for the entire group. Uh, but Agave was where I spent most time at because, you know, of the tequilas and get to try a lot of tequilas. And then from there onwards, I thought, oh, I should actually go to Mexico and actually see how this product is made. And then I started going to Mexico. It was approximately seven years ago uh, where I went to Mexico for the first time. I just changed my mind, you know. I've been to so many distilleries from different spirits, but nothing was so romantic as producing tequila and mezcal. It was extremely labor-intensive. There was so many um, passion involved. People were, were talking about the spirit as if, you know, that was part of their life. Mm -hmm. It was just fascinating for me. So before we get into that, um, Macau, what was... Uh the regional differences, because for, for some people who have not visited the region, Macau and Hong Kong and, and China, they're, they're, they're sort of like the same thing, but they're not. So what were the regional differences that you found in between Macau and Hong Kong? And how did you go about settling your career and, or like adjusting your style based on the market? So, so moving into Macau, that was my first job in a hotel. Uh, it was a casino hotel. And... I, I moved there not because I wanted to work in a hotel. It was just because of that bar. Mm -hmm. But it was difficult in Macau because uh, the market there is, um, I don't think it's, it, it was ready and it's still ready for, for cocktails. Um, because approximately 
over 80% of your travelers, tourists going to Macau are actually from mainland China. And most of them are actually not our generation. They're like older and they just don't have any understanding for, for tequila. Oh, sorry, I mean Whiskey, for cocktails. Yeah, cocktails yeah. Uh, fuck, you know, whatever I say is uh, always tequila. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, it was it was uh, difficult, you know, but I, I tried, you know, I was there for three years. I tried. But even now, I mean, after so many years, I don't think much has changed, to be honest. Uh-huh. And you think that you were exposed to hotel environments, uh, the hotel environment for the first time. Is this something you like or not really? What were the pros and cons of I hate working in hotels. Okay. Like, I extremely hate. And you know that. I mean, you work you work in a hotel as well. There's a lot of things you want to do. Um, it, it just holds you back because there's just so many layers of approval you require, uh, things you want to do. I mean, bartenders have, you know, when you work in a bar, you have plenty of ideas. And sometimes you just want to do it right away. You just don't want to wait for it. You know, you just want to do it. But working in hotels kind of like hold you back. You know, you really need to like follow by the book and you need a lot of approvals in order to do something uh so i it was it was good for me to work in a hotel to kind of learn you know how it is working in a hotel uh but i don't think i'll ever ever <laughs> do it again do it again <laughs> yeah, i think it's a love or hate thing you know like it's it's we all find our size it's important I think that's why it's important, as you mentioned, to make sure that you try all different styles of bars in order to mm-hmm. find what is it that fits your personality, right? Okay, wait, I want to add to that. Uh, I mean, hotels now, they're slightly different. Like I've seen like hotels uh, where they hire bartenders with tattoos. Back then, when I was working in hotels, that was not allowed. I, I had a tattoo on my finger. They asked me to like tape it up so people don't see it. Yeah, that's just a you know, like, thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Then, um, I mean, now uh, there are so many great cocktail bars in hotels, uh, but because now I think uh, the mindset is changing a little bit. Now uh, the, your management, senior management, actually actually supporting this. But back then, no. Back then they w- were only looking at numbers. They're like, okay. Uh, I mean, especially when I was working in Macau, like I said, 80% of our travelers were from China. They were not into cocktails. So why would they support you in doing something that promotes cocktail? Because yep, it doesn't don't show on it. paper. Yeah, yeah. yeah, of course. So I guess the, the timing where I had working in hotels was just not right. Mm. Uh, so it didn't give me like a great experience. But I mean, I learned different things. I, I learned how to like, you know, operate a few outlets at the same time. I managed uh, way more people than, than you know, I would have have. Uh, so it teaches you a lot of things, you know, working in hotels. Yeah, no, of course, of course. And that's why, you know, but I to have a plethora of different experiences under your belt is actually beneficial, right? So we are now like, getting back to your Hong Kong bits. Um, how was uh, meeting Julio Bermejo? Did you did you know who he was at the time, or I knew? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, um, I knew Julio because of Tommy's Margarita. To be honest, uh, that was like w- a long time ago. I, f- I think the first time I met Julio was actually in Macau. Uh, he came for the Agave Love that was uh, organized by Phil Bailey a few years ago. And yeah, I get to see him in Macau, and yeah, we we went out. You know, we we, we had a good time. Uh, we end up, you know, eating um, supper, uh, maybe breakfast. <laughs> it was like six a.m. in Macau, and drinking ocho. Yeah, it was really interesting. What were the first distilleries that you visited in uh, in Mexico? 
So I contact um, Guillermo Sauza from Fortaleza mm-hmm. on Facebook. Uh, I didn't know anybody there back then. He was, I think he was in New Orleans. He gave me uh, St- uh, Stefano's contact, who, you know, is the brand ambassador. And uh, so I got in touch with him uh, via email. And uh, he actually got me in touch with even more people, uh, such as Eduardo from um, Arete, Sergio from Don Falano. Uh, and then from them, like, I get to know more people. And it was just people to people to people. And every time I went to Mexico, I get to know even more people. And so that was a start, actually. So I think people there were really, really nice and helpful. And and they're very, very welcoming. So that added to the experience, you know, for me, you know, like that, that was like the, the hospitality for me. I get to know uh, so many people inside a short time. I went to Jalisco for the first time. And then the same trip, I actually went down to uh, Oaxaca. Uh, my first mezcal distillery that I went, uh, or Palenque that I visited was actually called uh, the uh, Los Javis, the, the mezcal. I was in Santiago Matalan, which is not too far from the main city, like around half an hour drive. So uh, Javi, which is the uh, master distiller now, um, he I met him in Jalisco uh, on the same trip, actually. And it was just coincidence, you know, from there on, you know, like I get to know more people from them. And yeah, I've been going to Mexico now at least twice every year for the past um, six, seven years now. So you've been quite a lot, huh? Yeah. So in terms of regional styles, would you like to talk to us uh, about uh, what are uh, the main regional differences in between tequila and mezcal? So tequilas, the majority of tequila comes from Jalisco. So Jalisco is like the largest uh, market. I'd say approximately over 90% of all tequilas that we have now comes from Jalisco alone. And for mezcal, the ma- the major state is Oaxaca. Oaxaca is where you most of the mezcals are produced from. And in terms of variety for tequila, you can only use the blue agave. For mezcal, you can use any type as long as there's enough sugar to ferment, as long as the agaves are not inedible. Uh, you can use that to make mezcal. Majority of the mezcal are made from an agave called espadín because espadín takes one of the least amount of time to grow. And it also produces a lot of clones uh, around the mother plant, which is called hijuelos. So those clones are basically uh, harvested and then probably spend a couple of years in, or maybe a year in nursery, and then they take it out and replant it back in, into the field. Uh, so it doesn't go through the uh, natural pollination, uh, so the seeding process. That's why it can grow um, really faster and quicker. But then there are some varieties of agave that cannot be produced using clones, so you need to actually use natural pollination. Most mezcals uh, you find in Mexico would have a term uh, on the bottle, which is which is called translated into wild agave, and uh, those agaves are basically you know going out in the wild and finding whatever is available and harvest them and cook them, ferment, wild ferment, and depending on where it is, you know, it's distilled from copper pot to clay pot, or even sometimes in wood, uh, which is also known as the Filipino style, where you have distillation condensation happening in the same vessel. So there's a lot of varieties, actually, a lot of diversity in producing mezcal. Uh, so you mentioned that uh, the majority of it, uh, like you, you love it because of you've got these regional styles. Do you find it difficult to find consistency in mezcal due to the fact that some of them are like wild? The beauty about mezcal is uh, it doesn't have to be consistent. I mean, every brand, they have their own 
I mean, DNA, you, you could taste the DNA in the product, but it could vary from batch to batch. Um, and even the ABV doesn't have to be always the same, but some commercial products, it's always consistent. But then the interesting ones would be, you know, uh, it, it is really based on batch to batch, actually. Um, an example would be, uh, you know, we had this ricea called La Venenosa, which is, uh, the variety is called Puntas. Uh, so it is one of the, you know, in the mezcal world, you can't distill or bottle mezcal that is above 55%, so that's your limit. But ricea, because it is not legally a mezcal, they, dis they could distill it over that. And the Puntas is actually above 60% alcohol by volume. So the first batch we actually received was around 60.5% ABV. And then the second batch we had was actually 61.5% ABV. So there, it varies a little bit, you know, and, and, and that's the beauty, you know, for example, talking about Ocho tequila, uh, the, the identity, uh, positioning of Ocho is basically, uh, agaves that are harvested from different plantation in different years because different agave produced in different part of, let's say, even in that tiny microclimate can taste so different, actually. And that is the beauty that you can compare. So we're not talking about, you know, like big brands. We're talking about these tiny brands that are family-owned. They are producing it because they love the product, you know, and they're not doing it because they want to make tons of money out of it. It's just their passion. And that's what makes it unique, right? Exactly. So at what stage did you start feeling that you wanted to open your own bar? I think it was me going to Mexico too much and <laughs> I had uh, a lot of bottles uh, that I was collecting. Uh, I was in my home and my uh, wife, uh, she, she wasn't happy about it because she's like, you know, we're not supposed to keep alcohol in our house. I'm like, great, then I think I should open a bar. <laughs> that's, that's it, done. <laughs> that was the beginning. And how did you go about it? Because uh, Hong Kong is a very competitive market and, and I'm sure renting, it's not easy. How did you go about opening your bar and what were the challenges you went through? I think... Um, Opening Koa was, I think I was very lucky because I basically co-founded Koa, so I have a business partner. Uh, she's not from the industry. So one day, you know, just like us right now, we're sitting you know, right across, we're having a cup of tea together. And then I just casually told her I wanted to open a bar. And then she, I think she was on the right page. And then she was like, you know, I wanted to do something as well. And that was the beginning. And from that chat we had, within less than three months, the bar was open. Oh, that's we were like yeah. super lucky because you know it takes such a long time sometimes to find a location people spend maybe two three years just to find the perfect location for the restaurant or bar but i think everything for us came together really quickly however um of course we didn't we didn't have an easy time because we're talking about agave spirits and agave is not one of the most uh approachable product in terms of people's perception and when people hear about mezcal and tequila it's not the first thing that excites them so it was difficult like i think uh, we opened in 2017 december first of december the first three months we were losing money uh it was it was tough i was talking to my business partner i'm like what should we do i, I don't think this is uh doing well uh, but it's, it was also because, you know, December is not the perfect time to open a bar because a lot of people are out of town and a lot of businesses, they are doing uh, corporate parties. And when you're new, nobody knows who you are. So they don't even look for you. Then January is, um, again, the beginning of the year is always tough because a lot of people are dry January. They don't drink that much. And again, because we were new. And then credit uh, card bills start to pile up. So absolutely, yeah. And then Feb. 
February uh, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, it's Chinese New Year. And again, people are out of town. There's holidays and holidays and holidays. So we were suffering. But then March, we braked even for that month and with maybe a little bit of profit, not a lot, but just a little bit of profit. And we were like, oh shit, okay. Now there's at least some some something good, you know, yeah, for us. Like a glimmer of hope, right? Exactly. So then we we went on, you know, we went on. And since then, every month uh, we got better and better and better. And I would really, really thank the industry, uh, especially in Hong Kong. The bars and bartenders actually really helped us verbally promoted Koa to their guests. So we get a lot of people actually from other bars around us. So you decided to open a bar that, uh, of course, is agave-focused. We mentioned why. However, how did you decide to structure it? Because like an agave bar can be a place where you just go and have different kinds of tequilas, but yours is a very cocktail-focused bar. So what was the brief when you opened the Coa? You won't believe it, but um, the first time when I went to Mexico, that was the time I actually wanted to open a bar that was agave-focused. And I had it ready on a piece of paper. And then from the piece of paper, it went on to my PowerPoint. And I just had this vision of myself one day owning a bar. And I had this concept brief ready. And every few months, I would amend it to refine it, basically. So I had this ready like a few years back. So that's why when I said, when I had this chat with my uh, uh, business partner, it just took us three months to open the bar because I had everything at the back of my head. I know exactly what I wanted to do. So it was actually prepared a, a while ago. <laughs> so how's your, how's Koa? Tell us about Koa. Koa is uh, doing really well now. I mean, uh, it's it's more established. Um, more people know about the place. Uh, we get a lot of tourists, a lot of travelers coming. And it's more consistent. We get more regular customers coming in as well. So basically what we do at Koa is um, uh, we focus a lot on... Uh, Mexican products. We're not just limited to tequila and mezcal. We have ricea, we have sotol, uh, we have charanda, which is a type of Mexican rum. And then we also have uh, rums from Mexico that are actually made from sugarcane. So they're like, you know, martinic rum, for example, the agricultural style. style. And then we also have some products from different countries, you know, agave spirit made in different countries. So we do collect those as well. We have a gin. That's uh, mezcal base. That's really distilled with botanicals, for example. So we don't just focus on on mezcal and tequila, but we wanted to like broaden the category and find something more interesting. And yeah, we, we've been we've been trying to collect more and more products. Um, hopefully, coming year we also wanted to go and look for mezcals that are not maybe bottled legally okay you know yeah you, that's because that's the best product like when you go out to mexico you go to these remote areas and you see this guy making a, a spirit only for his village and that's the best thing you know when you taste it you're like oh wow because they don't have any restriction they don't have to follow any guidelines they just make it the way they want to make it mm-hmm. and that tastes the most delicious actually uh, so that's something, uh, phase two, uh, hopefully coming here in 2020, I will spend more time going around Mexico and find something really unique, actually. Oh, what a pity eh, for you. Yeah, somebody got to do it, man. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you manage to import these spirits? Because here in Asia, it's not very easy to just get whatever you want, right? Mm-hmm. So what channels do you use in order for you to import stuff? 
we hand carry a lot of stuff. Uh, we also talk to our friends that are traveling to the States or to Mexico or even to UK, you know, wherever they can get something that we can't get in Hong Kong. And of course, uh, the product has to be good. And uh, we also talk to distributors to help us bring, you know, something different. Like recently we did a collaboration with uh, uh, Arete to do like a private label for our bar actually. Uh, so things like that, I mean, we whenever we get a chance, uh, opportunity, we try and get something that's not available in Hong Kong. Mm. I would say right now, maybe over 60% of the products are not available in Hong Kong that we have. But I think the market is growing in Hong Kong as well. So I've seen a lot of like new brands uh, of mezcal and tequila is actually now available in Hong Kong. I mean, I, I mean I've, I've been doing guest bartending in many places. And I, I think probably Hong Kong and Singapore are the top two markets in terms of, you know, the quantity of mezcal and tequila you can actually find. Sometimes it's difficult when you do guest shift and you go to a place and they don't have much. They might only have like three or four brands of mezcal available in the entire country. Uh, so we're very lucky, you know, and Koa is the kind of concept. If you want to do it in Asia, it has to be, you know, either in Hong Kong or, or Singapore, Singapore or, yeah. or maybe even in Japan, like Tokyo, for example, because, you know, I think they have a growing market there as well. You also love fermented stuff or yeah. kombuchas. How did you get into that? I think it all started from tepache. Uh, so tepache is this uh, fermented beverage from Mexico, uh, traditionally made with pineapple skin, uh, water, sugar. Uh, they're left to ferment, and then you could add spices to it if you want to. Uh, in Mexico, they just pour out of a clay and into your glass, you know, and then you could like put tahini on top and uh, chili powder. Uh, but what we've done, I mean, I've been making uh, tapache for a long time actually, but I was doing it at home, just practicing. Uh, the more I did, the more I learned. And uh, when we opened Koa, I decided to do one at the bar actually. So it was a wild fermented drink uh, that we use an entire pineapple. We chop it into pieces. Uh, of course, we, we, we use organic pineapples because it's important that there's no um, pesticides on the, on, the, on the skin of the pineapple. And uh, on the skin of the pineapple, you have a lot of wild yeast and bacteria. And yeast such as Brettanomyces, uh, which actually provides that um, sour, funky flavor to your product. So we would leave that in water uh, that's been infused with cinnamon and sugar. The water has to be chlorine-free, so you can't use water from the tap directly because it contains chlorine, and that kills off a lot of bacteria and yeast. Uh, so we'll just leave it to ferment, and for after a couple of days, it really depends on, on, on the, the weather and the humidity. Sometimes it could take a week, sometimes it could take maybe a couple of days, and uh, we would then bottle it. And then we will ferment it in the bottle, bottle condition it. So it will have natural bubbles and we will serve it in a tiny bottles, soft drink bottles with our own label on it. It got really, really popular. And from there on, you know, like we wanted to experiment more doing different things. So we have done like mead, we've done uh, rice, rice wine, rice beer, uh, kombuchas, of course. And basically pretty much all sort of uh, fermented beverages we have tried in our bar actually. Uh, what uh, are the drinks that you are most proud of? I think, well, I would say all. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good start. I would yeah. say all because uh, whatever we have on the menu is basically a work that consists of every single team member. So when, when we come up with a drink, we let everyone try in our bar. Unless if there's one person who doesn't like it, the drink doesn't go into the menu. So we have to find the reason why he doesn't like it. 
uh, because in the end of the day, we're using mezcal and tequila, right? And when people come to our bar, um, they when they look at the menu, 90% of the drinks on the menu are mezcal and tequila. So uh, we want to make sure, even though we use these products, we want the majority of the people to enjoy it. You know, we don't want to turn them off. So we that's that's what we do. We we give the drink around to all our team members uh, to taste. And they give their honest opinion about what they feel about the drink. doesn't matter if the person is experienced or not because every opinion counts to us. And from there, we, we try and, you know, to see whether, you know, the comment is, is, is logical. And from there on, we try and tweak the drink to make sure everyone enjoys it in the end of the day. And that, that drink goes onto the menu. Uh, so that's why every drink on the menu, we're, we're, we're proud of it. But of course, uh, one of the best selling drinks we have is our take on a classic Paloma. <clears throat> which is a simple um, a twist on a classic drink. Uh, so we use a, a blend of tequila and mezcal, a bit of fresh lime. We use grapefruit soda. And then around the glass, we uh, use uh, sal de gusano, which is the warm salt from uh, Oaxaca. So that gives you like an umami explosion in your mouth, uh, lots of flavor. Uh, but it goes really well with the Paloma because uh, Paloma is citrusy and refreshing. With that savory note on the rim of the glass, it gives you a very nice contrast. So that would be probably the best selling drink we have. And... Uh how often do you refresh the menu? Uh, well, probably every week we have one new drink on the menu. Okay, yeah. so it's a very much like of, a, of the dynamic menu. <clears throat> yeah, so set. we design our menu ourselves. We, then we have this uh, shop, which helps us print the menu right across our bar. So it was it's super easy for us. We don't really announce, you know, we're launching new menu. Uh, every time when we have our guests coming back, you know, they always see there's a new drink to try. And and it's good because our menu is small. We only have maybe seven to eight drinks signature on the menu. But every week there's one new drink. So there's always something new for you to try. And we're not limited to what's on the menu. We're a fully stocked bar. So if you want to come in and order um, a Manhattan or a Sazerac, you know, whatever we make it for you because we have uh, a small quantity of everything we have a uh, gins uh of, we try not to carry too many commercial products we have some really interesting gin for example we have a gin from okinawa that is actually a distilled awamori with spices from you know japan um so this is one example i mean we have uh, some interesting rums as well um i mean beside the commercial products i mean we don't we don't have much i mean we we have, like I mentioned earlier, that we have some Mexican rums, for example. So if people want something with rum, sure, we give them something new to try. So we have everything in, in smaller quantities. We have a few Amaros here and there that could do all, pretty much all classic drinks. So what advice would you give to someone like you who had an amazing idea and wants to open his own bar? Um, I think uh, what I've learned opening Koa is do not rush into things. Um, take your time. It's... Uh, you know, it's never too late because business is very risky. And of course, try and find investors that could invest in you. Don't use all your money <laughs> to invest in a bar because opening a bar is probably one of the most riskiest business out there. Um, so try and find investors, try and find people who could add value to your business. And also at the same time, um, do not rush into things. Uh, take things step by step, slowly and slowly. Um, I think that's the best way. Uh, this is something I learned, and if I open a new bar, I don't want to go through the same kind of experience I did with Koa, like the first few months. But I think it was important for me too because I learned a lot of things from that. But I don't think anyone needs to go through that. So, uh-huh. so I think take it slow. Any regrets that you have in what you did? Never, no regrets actually. Um, Hashtag no regrets. No regrets. <laughs> I mean, uh, if I 
you know, go back to 2017, I would have done the same thing because, you know, every bartender, one day they want to open their own venue. They want to open their own bar. I'm sure you want to do that as well because then you have your own freedom to do whatever mm -hmm. you want. Of course. You don't have to get approvals from anybody. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and that's the sweet, sweet, sweetest thing, you know, like, um, and I've seen a lot of like uh, bartenders now, you know, around Asia opening their own bars, which is actually really good. And I really hope the best for everyone. And, you know, it also helps the community in general because if it's a bartender-owned bar, they put a lot of love, passion into the, the venue. Um, sometimes, you know, there are people who have money. They just want to open a bar and they just don't understand the business. End up, you know, they, they fail. So I think a bartender-driven bars are very important to the, the community right now. And hopefully we get more of that, you know, in the future as well. What's the future of Koa? Well, um, like I said, we want to take things slowly. Um, and r right now, it's bad times in Hong Kong, so we're not going to do anything uh, uh, crazy now. Uh, hopefully, when things go back to normal, we want to expand Koa. We, hopefully, we could have, you know, maybe a few Koas around Asia. Um, but in Hong Kong, I would say we, one is enough because... There's no need to have two or three calls yeah. in Hong Kong. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're looking, we're, we're, we're never say no to anything. I mean, if there's anything interesting uh, that comes in front of us, uh, we'll definitely consider. But I think right now we want to take it slow because it's one of the worst times in Hong Kong. Uh, once that's gone, we will look into it. You have managed to achieve a lot of significant awards in a very short period of time. Was this something that you were aiming at or was it sort of unexpected? Well, winning awards, um, I think it is important uh, for the team. It is important for the business and also for yourself. It is a kind of acknowledgement that um, tells you that you're doing something right and people are really appreciating what you're doing. So, uh, However, I don't think this should be the aim because if you open a bar and you say, oh, I want to aim to be Asia 50 or World 50, it is difficult. It's very stressful. I'd say focus on what you believe, focus on what you want to do, and then leave the rest to other people. You know, if you do it right, people will come, people will enjoy, and eventually you will get awards. Mm. So I think this shouldn't be the priority, uh, but focus on what you really want to do. How, how did your wife see this whole thing? Well, <laughs> okay, so. Uh, we when we were in Singapore, uh, when we got the highest new entry for the bar in Asia, and her reaction was like, "Oh, congratulations! You know, <laughs> cool well story, done, bro. Yeah, very good." <laughs> so, I think everybody have you know. Um, I think she would want me to spend more time with her, to be honest, uh, uh, with her and with the kid. Uh, but I'm just so tied up right now. But I think I need to find a balance between work and life, and I really want to spend more time with the family as well. And for her, is like, I mean, she appreciates, like, the, if the bar is doing well, if you're winning awards. But I think her priority right now is to, for me to spend more time with the family. Uh -huh. yeah. I'm sure you get to do that. Okay. I, I try my best. Uh, but hopefully 2020 will be, um, you know, I would want to spend more time with the family, yeah. I think it's a nice thought to wrap this uh, episode. Uh, I think there is a last question that I would like to ask you, uh, which we ask everyone. It's like, if you could choose your very last drink, what would that drink be? Oh, wow. I would say... Um, surprisingly, it's not a tequila and mezcal cocktail. Uh, my favorite classic drink is actually a Sazerac. Oh, really? Yes. So if you come to my bar, please feel, feel free to order a Sazerac because I love making them and I love drinking them, actually. So Sazerac would be my choice. 
Cool. Thank you very much for your time. It was awesome to chat to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Jay. We are unjiggered underscore media on Instagram, and you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself, and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.